Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Lorelai Root and Mike Greer, who are the chair and vice chair of the City of Guelph's Accessibility Advisory Committee. If you care about making a more inclusive city for people with disabilities, this committee is key. Its mission is to provide vision and direction to staff and council regarding the removal of barriers that exist within municipal services, practices, and programs, which, as anyone on the AAC will tell you, is easier said than done. It's election time here in Guelph, and while accessibility probably doesn't make the top five election issues that are concerning to the general public, it probably should be, and this is the podcast that is going to explain to you why. Rethinking accessibility in Guelph is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. There was a Guelph man named Matthew Wazanelic who passed away in 2016. He was well known for being a longtime computer and business teacher at both Ross and GCVI, but he was even more well known for his Stop Ableism campaign, a one-man effort to make Guelph more accessible one fight at a time. Some people saw Wazanelic as a nuisance, but many people saw him as a champion for accessibility, collecting small victories with a ramp here or an elevator there, or that time he took Elections Canada to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The awareness that he raised did translate into an improved community, and it did a lot to make people more mindful of barriers to physical accessibility. So we all lived happily ever after, right? Leading up to this election, we've seen the limits of accessibility at City Council. Parking spaces, automatic doors, and ramps are easy to install, but true accessibility for everyone and creating a society that's barrier-free is actually easier said than done. Consider the lobbying done by the AAC and other members of Guelph's disabled community to be able to vote on their own terms in this municipal election, or the recent debate about excluding straws from the single-use plastic ban and how a compromise on the city bylaw was then rescinded when the new federal regulations were announced. Those are two rather obvious recent examples of issues that matter to people with disabilities, but there is so much more to consider, and it all stems from a lack of awareness. For instance, is the space you're currently occupying accessible to people who are noise-sensitive, or perhaps scent-sensitive? Can people on the autism spectrum feel comfortable and secure there? Is everyone in that space masked and physically distant? In case you forgot, some people with disabilities are more susceptible to the worst cases of COVID-19. So do we think about those people as we race to get back to normalcy? These are all key questions, and we will try and consider them all and more on this week's Guelph Politicast. Gur and Root will talk about the one thing they wished everyone knew about accessibility issues in Guelph, the complex series of barriers that need to be broken down, and why the path to true accessibility needs to mean more than taking off boxes down a checklist. We will also talk about the effectiveness of the Accessibility Advisory Committee when it comes to changing minds at City Hall, whether or not that might be changing and what might be changed if there's more representation for people with disabilities in local positions of power. And finally, we will talk about the ongoing impact of COVID-19, making accessibility the minimum standard, and whether we should change the stick figure in a wheelchair as the symbol for accessibility. So I caught up with Mike Greer and Lorelai Root earlier this week via Zoom. 
Okay, so I am now being joined by Mike Greer. And uh, Mike, are you past chair or are you still on the Advisory Accessibility Committee? I probably should have asked this before we started recording, but I'm asking now. Yeah, well, right now I'm now vice chair. Uh, vice chair. My, yeah, this is my last term. So our uh, upcoming meeting this month will be my last meeting. Okay, so the person who will be looking after that meeting is Lorelei Root, who is the current chair of the Accessibility Advisory Committee. Hi, Lorelei. Hi. Yeah, I was going to say it's actually Lorelei. Not that it really matters, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've been going back and forth since we've been talking. Yeah, people uh, do. I've had Lorelei a few times too, <laughs> so you're not the worst by far. Lorelei is an interesting take. Um <laughs> All right, let's <laughs> let's talk accessibility. Uh, so since you're on my screen, Lorelai, I'll start with you. Um, and it's kind of just very general to sort of set the scene. But um, what's one thing that sort of people misunderstand when we talk about accessibility? When you're, you know, you're out there and you're just having a conversation with someone and you, you bring talk and conversation about how you're the chair of the accessibility advisory committee and, you know, that comes with questions like so what are you know maybe what are you know something that somebody doesn't understand about accessibility that you bring to their attention yeah one of the biggest things is definitely how much people equate accessibility to mean wheelchair access um, and i'm a wheelchair user i use assistive devices but i also have other disabilities and need accessibility in other areas of my life and there are other people who experience barriers that i don't um, a lot of people don't realize that when we're talking about accessibility, we're talking about mental health accessibility. We're talking about making events accessible to people who have substance use disorders. We're talking about making sure that things are accessible to blind and low vision folks. We're like, it's a whole spectrum of things that fall under accessibility, but especially as someone who often uses a wheelchair, people think I'm just talking about making sure things have ramps and elevators. And there's just so much more to the conversation than that, even down to like language choices and ableism and systemic problems. And yeah, there, there's so much more to accessibility than just ramps and, and automatic door buttons. Uh, Mike, same question to you. Yeah, and I think I'm going to uh, dovetail off of what Lorelai has said on that one, because many of the conversations that I have uh, through my role at the Rick Hansen Foundation talks about removing barriers in the built environment. And when you look at wheelchair users, as a wheelchair user myself, we really only account for roughly 25% of the, the disabled community. And when you really break it down to when we talk about removing barriers, it is more than just an automatic door and a ramp. Uh, when we talk to store owners about how to make their store more friendly for someone with low vision or who may have uh, hearing impairments, right? It's like you take away one or two barriers for them. That makes that place fully accessible for them. And it's trying to understand that mindset of accessibility and people with disabilities come in all shapes and sizes, right? And they come from all social economic aspects as well. Um, there is still that, that conscious or unconscious bias of when you say person with a disability, they automatically mean, oh, you're on social assistance. You don't have an education. Uh, you're always needing help. And I think that's kind of one of the mystifying barriers that um, I try to really try to say, hey, you're, there's more to than just meets the eye. And we come in different uh, aspects of it. And every barrier that we try to remove is for everyone. And I think that is where it, it, it fundamentally comes down to what we, what you use from an accessibility aspect benefits everyone. 
Mm-hmm. And just to lift off something you said to me in one of our conversations, Mike, that there's just kind of two modes when we're talking about how we approach people with disabilities, where they're either sort of put on a pedestal um, as like supreme examples of, of I, I guess, fortitude and, um, and and leadership, or you know, we kind of uh, hit the the pity mode. There there are these kind of two extremes when we're talking about people with um, disabilities. Agreed. And you kind of see that one, especially, you know, as much as uh, as I really, um, as an adaptive athlete myself and the stuff that I do, when it comes around Olympic time, especially the Paralympics, it is that tooting the horn of these great athletes. And they're put on these pedestals of almost demigod status in terms of this is a disabled person. Look at the look at all the barriers that they've removed to get to this high level. But there is so many majority that are in the middle. And I think that's where it's such a diverse understanding of there's a diverse group of, of individuals. Mm-hmm. Lorelai, I'm going to go back to you um, because people will probably recognize your, your voice, your face from delegated to council, especially recently on the, the matter of um, access to plastic straws. What it struck me as, and there's been a lot of discussion throughout this uh, past term of council about how much, um, staff and council take away from advisory committees and how much influence maybe advisory committees have. Um, but, you know, you came into that last meeting with, you know, a, a list of recommendations that you and the other committee members worked with staff to develop. Um, and this comes especially after numerous conversations at council where it seems like the AAC has um, not been consulted before direction is given. So even in just this one example is, you know, to your point of view, is is there been a, an improvement in, you know, that communication, that back and forth? Yeah, I definitely came away from that delegation in particular feeling very, I, I was honestly surprised. I think I passed on five recommendations from the AAC and all five of them, one with a slight modification of rather than doing the thing we're going to look into if the thing is possible, which really is uh very in line with the intention uh, that the AAC had anyway. So um, I I was, I felt really good about that for sure. Uh, it It is frustrating sometimes though, because um, people will often say, wow, the city of Guelph has an AAC. That's so cool. Like when they hear that I work on the accessibility advisory committee or that I'm doing work with the site plan people for Guelph or anything like that. Uh, people say that's so progressive that Guelph has an accessibility advisory committee. But I think a lot of people don't realize that it's actually not. It's legally, it's legislated that a city our size must have an accessibility advisory committee. They don't have to implement anything that we advise. They don't have to, they have to hear us if we would like to talk to them about something, but they don't have to. And very, very, very frequently choose to not follow the recommendations of the AAC. And that usually comes down to um, things costing too much, uh, not enough people wanting the thing, which we're a minority. So, of course, we're never going to have the the, my, the majority numbers. And then also uh, people thinking that accessibility features are like ugly or inconvenient. Um, so, very rarely do we see what we saw with the delegation on straws where all of the recommendations were passed along. And I was very happy about that, but I uh, would like to see it happen more for sure. <laughs> do you think that maybe um, a lot of the debate around um, the, the using the assistance devices for voting 
because I think, and maybe you, you have a, a different take, but uh, there was a lot of regret about that, that maybe timing didn't work out. And if, if their time was more on uh, council side, that there might've been more willingness to, to make that leap. Uh, you know, uh, is there a bit of, you know, I guess we, we handed the AAC a loss last time. We're going to hand them a, a win this time. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think with the voting, I was really frustrated by that. And I think a lot of people who were involved in the conversation were frustrated by the the we don't have enough time conversation because I've been talking to the city about this since 2017. Um, so and and we had been specifically bringing forward the recommendations that we had to the clerk's office for over a year, I believe, uh, maybe just under a year or around a year at the time of the delegations when we were told we don't have enough time now. And so I was, I, I think I made that pretty clear in my delegations on the uh, the accessible voting options that it was frustrating to work so hard for so long and then be told, oh, we don't have enough time, but I've been working for a year. So <laughs> where, where did the time go? I'm confused. So yeah, that maybe it was, I know that I think Councillor McKinnon brought forward a motion at a later time asking to reopen discussion on that topic because he said, he felt that they perhaps made an ableist decision um, without all of the information unintentionally. And uh, unfortunately, council decided not to discuss it again at that time. But maybe next year, although maybe next year is what they told us at the last election. So right. I'm not really holding my breath. Right. And Mike, you've um, been in the, the proverbial trenches uh, longer than Lorelai. Uh, I, I, and, and this is something we also talked about. Does that kind of i guess i don't want to say ignorance but that kind of like putting it off putting it off pulling it off until it's too late to to take the action that um disability advocates want does that change if there is first representation in the council chamber of somebody somebody who's you know open with their disability it's not necessarily a visible disability as i know you guys both know but someone who openly says i am a person with a disability and does that change if there is, you know, I, I, there, there probably are people with visible or invisible disabilities that work at City Hall. But the question is, you know, how many of them are in, you know, management positions? Does so, so I guess the question is, does that visibility in terms of management or council, does that would that have a better get, get a better reception when it comes to the decision making? Right. And I, and I, I'd have to agree that it would. And the reason why I say that, cause I will two, two points. One that I find that the, the city and the city of Guelph is a very reserved um, political structure. Mm. They don't want to take any adverse risks. You know, they're always very muted and how they, they do things. And they always look to other municipalities to say, you know, all right, you're the leader. What are you doing? All right, let's take that and, and go for it that way. I've seen that time and time again, because that's one of the issues that we face is they always come back to us and saying, well, we're looking for, you know, what other municipalities are doing, we'll take what they're doing with it. And we're always saying, well, you know, take the leadership, be initiative, be, be inventive and start doing things a little bit more creative to remove some of these barriers. And they're like, well, we need to see some studies. And the other thing is you've got a committee of experts Right. From an accessibility perspective, you know, that's that's your study right there. You, you're you, you've got us 
to give you feedback, to be that sounding board. And I think there is just a, a, an apprehension, but that also leads into a scenario that there's not enough um, internal uh, communication and awareness. I think that is the biggest barrier is really taking the, the, the accessibility portfolio and spreading it out. Because mm. um, I, in my role at the foundation, Rick Hansen Foundation, is I talk to municipalities all across the country. And when you talk to municipalities that have got more than just one person who's got the accessibility coordinator, you know, portfolio, and sometimes it's parks and management or in, 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 in wastewater, you know, it's congratulations, here's accessibility. And they're going, I have no idea what I'm doing with this, right? Here's some mandates and they're just doing the checklist, right? And, but when you get additional training, you get additional resources that come in and start building out a larger uh, portfolio and plan and policy conversation, that then spurs adoption and that and you're seeing it more and more in, in in some municipalities you know unfortunately not so much here in ontario at the present time but we're seeing it more and more in bc uh, because you know they got a new accessibility law coming in so i think this is a really big important thing that you know the, the city really needs to look at accessibility and really have a conversation in all departments and all levels because whatever they do really impacts everyone with a, with a disability, either short-term or long-term. And it has repercussions to families, et cetera. So there's so many social aspects of it that it's all tied in. There are, of course, people at the City of Guelph whose job is diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're not necessarily tied to a specific department. Should, I guess, um, making people with disabilities part of that work um, I mean, should that be the job of somebody like Sarah Saeed or is is, the, is this portfolio maybe big enough to have like an accessibility standards officer or, you know, whatever title that person is given, but have somebody whose job it is to go into every city department to to raise that awareness? I think it's a combination of both. And I've had conversations with Sarah and 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 she's looking to us as uh, as as guidance to understand, you know, what she needs to, to do in, in her role to make her very successful because we're seeing more and more organizations that are looking at it from a facility management and the EDI aspect and they're merging together because they have to be blended because they have to work in unison. So that's very key and, and important, but there also needs to be someone at a very high level management perspective that really makes those accessibility decisions in, in tow with the policies around equity and diversion and inclusion as well. Mm -hmm. Lorelai, I'm going to ask you to lend your tech savviness because you do work in tech. Um, and I'm sure you've made a note, as I've made a note, uh, there's a lot of, shall we say, borderline Ludditism in the city. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of... A lot of, you know, half of city council is not really active on social media. You know, a lot of them don't have a like a real web presence and, uh, you know, th these little things we discover. And, and perhaps you'll agree again, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, tech has made certain aspects to the your daily routine as a person with disabilities easier. And that, that mm -hmm. goes for a lot of people. So is just like the exception of tech, the, the acceptance of technology a barrier you know, is, you know, does having people who are a little more enlightened about technology in our city leadership help this issue? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, I'm, I'm giggling a little bit because I remember back in 
2017, I believe, the the very first time that I delegated about this because they were considering removing, sorry, the first time I delegated about online voting and uh, other electronic options for voting. Um, it, they were considering removing online voting as an option and we're talking that out. And some of the counselors were talking about things like my my nephew, my grandson told me that you can go on something called the deep web and you can hire someone to rig an election and that you can. And, you know, they're talking about things that they are saying, like, I don't understand this, but I'm afraid of it because mm. I saw on Facebook or someone forwarded me an email, you know, and I'm sitting there being like, I do understand this. I'm a digital accessibility specialist. I'm a full stack engineer. I fully understand what we are talking about. And it's difficult to make a case to people who don't understand it, but are afraid of it. So, and nobody came out and said straight up that they're afraid. And I'm not trying to accuse anyone of being like afraid of technology in general, but there is kind of that, um, if I don't understand it, how can I pass legislation on it? How can I create bylaws around it if I don't understand it? And in some ways that's fair, but I would really like people to either start to learn more or recognize that they need to look to people who do understand it and to other specialists in the industry when it comes to technology. And mm -hmm. certainly making just in general our municipal government more accessible to not just folks with disabilities, um, but also, you know, the younger crowd. Like, I don't think any of the counselors have TikTok. Everyone, like, if you asked, probably a lot of them don't know what TikTok is, but a lot of university students are just Instagram and TikTok now. Mm -hmm. They don't use Facebook. They don't use Twitter. Um, I was told recently that Facebook is for very, very old people like me. And I'm like, I'm in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, like things are changing and unfortunately the the different generations are using different technology and different social media platforms too. So becoming aware of how to use those and how to use them in an accessible format, understanding things like alt text and how to do alt text properly would be really helpful. And then you asked them about Friendster and they said, what? <laughs> so, sorry, Mike, I wanted to get that joke in. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah, um, yeah just, just to kind of go back on that one from other aspects of things to make the, the city, the city communication more accessible as well. Uh, I've been advocating for, 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 for the past few years uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the closed captioning for when they do uh, right. online council meetings, right? Especially when it's on uh, Rogers. Mm. They've got the banners and all that stuff, but it covers up everything. You know, it, it's it's like, well, we're working on it. We're working on it. I don't know how long it took us to get them to at least start doing alt text for anything that they were posting on online. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's it, those are the small things. Those are the easy wins, in my opinion. So um, when you have, again, the accessibility coordinator and, and her team, it it goes to show, you know, where there, there, there's, there's a lack of communication or something stops and it comes down to the value of what they're doing is being missed. And I think that's where the greater, uh, greater access is because people, some people may have, you know, uh, different noises going on. They didn't, may not have a, a, a hearing disability. So they put the alt text on anyways, just to right. kind of look over and read as they're doing other stuff. It benefits everyone if it's done right. So I think we have so many small wins the low hanging fruit that we can do a lot better yeah right. and the oh sorry just no, with no, the alt text point with the alt text point we pointed that out to the mayor 
And for the next one image that he posted, it had alt text. And then once again, now no images have alt text. Same with the city. The city did like two or three images with alt text. And then now the images don't have alt text again. So it's just like there's a lack of actually someone going in and creating policies that like as an organization, Guelph does this all the time to be inclusive. That piece is missing. Right. Meanwhile, the city kind of pats itself on the back. It's like, hey, now we have hybrid formatting. So, it, and again, it gets back to the, the idea of physical barriers. Yeah, if it's a bit harder for you to get around, especially in, like, say, the middle of a, a snowstorm in winter, you can still participate in city governance. But things like um, when they come up with a motion halfway through the meeting, a new motion that wasn't in the agenda package and it's thrown up on the screen. Well, if you're visually impaired, that doesn't mean anything. Somebody, they voted for something. You don't know what. Yeah, this actually comes up in our accessibility advisory committee meetings and we've found a way to make it work because I use a screen reader. I can't read. So people can't just share their screen and say, please follow along with this thing. Someone has to read something out loud or that everyone needs to take a moment and I need silence so I can listen to my screen reader to listen to the document that was sent to me. Um, things like that. And we've found a way to make it work and we follow a very similar format, albeit not quite so formal. But mm -hmm. I wonder if that and this isn't a question, but it's sort of a general comment. You know, uh, our, our committees are sort of in a sea without sort of a lot of engagement. And when when councils do engage with committees, it's when something comes from committee as sort of like a fully formed initiative or motion. You don't really have a lot of direct council involvement um, in, in committees. So they don't see what you guys are doing um, and may maybe see something that can be adapted. Mike, I was thinking a lot about... Uh, Matthew was an elect today. Um, I think I, I'm not sure if I pronounced his last name right, but um, he was very well known locally for, uh, you know, suing for access and, and taking, you know, a lot of these older buildings downtown um, to, I think he also brought a suit uh, for accessible voting at Elections Canada as well, if I remember correctly. Um, but it, it makes me wonder, and th this isn't, you know, to, to like you know say it's one or the other but um how much i guess do you think it would be better if appreciating that you know uh there are a lot of old buildings in uh the middle of our town <laughs> that uh were built before aoda standards but um is it a better use of time do you think to sort of look at the future and create better accessibility in the buildings we're building right now or throwing that effort into making the buildings that were built a hundred years ago more accessible by today's standards? I think you can do both. Okay. And I think you can do both in a, in, a, in a very meaningful way, because again, it comes back to what are we looking at it from meaningful access for a person with a disability? And we, mm -hmm. we fully understand mobility is, is, is most times the most cost prohibitive um, solution because it, it's structural changes to make things more adaptable for anyone in a mobility device. It's always the biggest, the bigger challenge. But again, the, the, this is the thing when I talk to developers and I talk to uh, organizations about, you know, do things in, in small incremental steps, because as I mentioned earlier on, if you um, make some uh, changes to your, your, your site that someone with a low vision, no vision can then successfully navigate. You've then opened that place up for that person. 
And that is a huge barrier win for them. So we really have to look at it from the, the grander scope of things of how to do the small little incremental things. Is it color contrasting? Is it changing of lighting? Is it acoustics? Small things where someone with sensory issues may go in, into a, a place. If we can do some sound dampening um, to make it more uh, more accessible for them. So it, it is more than just ramps. Love to see, you know, ramping of, of, of all the buildings downtown, but, you know, those are different steps, but also the big challenges, especially the older building and the heritage buildings, is there's this per, uh, misconception that when you add a ramp or something in an accessible feature, you're taking away its character. Well, that's not true. I've been to places in, in Europe, in, in England, these century old buildings that have got accessible features added into it, and they just build it into the, the facade and it makes it look uh, as part of the, the the building but the bigger one that we have to do a better job is the education from the developer standpoint and the architects and that's the one of the main things that we're doing um, is going to the architectural firms the colleges the universities are teaching architecture and really getting them to understand about accessible design and how it's very important when you're designing those spaces and it comes back to i'm sure we could have four or five uh follow-up uh sessions here to talk about housing because that is still the biggest one that we are failing horribly at and not doing a good enough job to really put housing into um a level that it's almost a critical need from an accessibility perspective because it trickles down to social economics to healthcare to all these other things that we're just not seeing it and i think this is the development first approach that so many places especially here in ontario that is is fighting against it because they, they, they see it as a, an affront to, we've got this great machine going right now and it's, you know, profit, repeat, build new one, profit, repeat, build one. And the, the one thing that we always hear is, oh, it, it meets code and AODA. Well, AODA is so far down the, down, you know, the, the level of what meaningful access is, right. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a poor standard to, to, to reach for. Would it help if, you know, and I was talking to somebody today about, you know, why is, aren't all houses now built with solar panels? It, it, like, just make it pro forma. Um, why don't we just build every unit to be accessible? And if you don't want to, you know, you, you want don't want an accessible bathroom in your house or for whatever reason, you know, you can make that request. But just as like sort of a basic standard. Why, well, there's, why, why don't we just make yeah, everything accessible? Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I, 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 agreed. But there's two, there's two, there's two issues here. And the one issue is the word accessible. Right. And the, the community um, or the developer community and the industry sees that as, well, you know, nobody wants it. It's, it's, it, it's an accessibility. It's, it's disabled. We have, there's a small community there. You know, why are we even building for that perspective? The other standpoint is and this is the thing that i always thought for when i was younger is okay the baby boomers are going to make sure that all these houses are going to be accessible mm -hmm. because they're going to get older they're the huge cohort they got the economic engine to do it but if you talk to many seniors they'll never say that they're disabled they'll never say they need a mm -hmm. wheelchair or any other assistive devices they're just old they're aging so mm -hmm. it's it's a terminology so i tell some developers reshift how you're communicating and guaranteed, you build it, they will come, and they will come in droves. And you're right to the point, it's got to be all across the board, because we can't, like, you can have 10% of a building that has accessible units, but you're not guaranteed that those units are going to be filled by someone with a disability. Right. 
because it just seems to me, you know, when when you attend as many planning meetings as I do, and you have, <laughs> a, you know, one of the counselors say, you know, well, how many accessibility uh, accessible units are going to be in this apartment? And the developers like, I don't know, two or you know, they, maybe they just don't know at all. It just seems like, well, wouldn't it just make our lives easier if all units were accessible? And it, you know, and maybe this just be maybe my like ableist point of view but um i i guess i i don't know that's that wasn't no, a question. That, that's a good point because honestly people come to my house and i most of the time people don't realize i have an accessible bathroom when they tell me i really like your bathroom you have such a big bathroom i'm like yeah my bathroom is big because i need a turn radius for my wheelchair right oh wow your mirror is really cool you can tilt it downward it has these like hinges you can tilt it off the wall and push it back so you can see your whole outfit all the way to the ground and then and i'm like yeah that's just because when i'm in my wheelchair i can't see in the mirror if i don't tilt it it's accessible um oh you have so much space under your counters yeah so that i can pull up to my counter with a wheelchair People don't often realize that I even live in an accessible unit, aside from the fact that I have an automatic door opener on my front door. Um, and But then, yeah, I've been trying to move for, gosh, six years now, and I cannot get my hands on an accessible unit. I'll finally find a place that I can live that has uh, wheelchair access for me, and I'll make an application, and I'll be told, I'm sorry, someone else got that unit, and I'll often ask, were they disabled? <laughs> And usually the answer is no, because it's not mm. like they're holding these units for specifically disabled people either. Right. So I am stuck in this one unit that I would like to move into a bigger place. And I just really can't find one. Yeah. And I think it, 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 the, the other challenge and the other thing that, you know, I have conversations with is from the, you know, um, the user perspective, because we can't build something today for understanding what the user is going to be tomorrow because uh. anyone can acquire a disability at any point in time in their life so developers and builders really have to understand it's like you know you want to build that 30 something um development you know with 30 steps to each of the each of the units because it's the young lifestyle uh, community but right. in 10 15 years things completely can change and then the other aspect is if if as your asian place you love your community. You want to stay in your community, but you're being forced out of it because the, your your living conditions are not meeting your needs and requirements. And that's the thing that I'm I'm challenged here in my two story house. You know, and it's and it's something that I'm like in Lorelai's scenario. Uh, fundamentally, trying to find something that's going to meet my needs as I continue to age is really hard, if not impossible. I don't know why Lorelai wants to move when she has such a big bathroom. Um... <laughs> Joking aside, um, <laughs> Mike gets at something, Lorelei. It's, um, you know, things change. Things change pretty rapidly. We've seen that in the last couple of years. Um, how has COVID impacted people with disabilities? Um, just, just sort of generally speaking, uh, I'm thinking a lot about the times I'm the only person on the bus with a mask or the I'm the only person in the store with a mask. And, you know, there are a lot of people with disabilities who have you know, health issues that make them especially susceptible to something like COVID-19. And it feels like uh, those people have been sort of left in the rear view as all of us get back to normal, as it were. Yeah, um, it's been hard. I'm not going to lie. It's been one of the it's been more challenging than I ever thought I would face a social problem in my life. I think I worded that weirdly. It's been a more difficult social problem than I ever imagined I would face. Um 
specifically just coming to terms with the amount of people who kind of don't care if I die. Like mm. that sounds very dramatic, but at mm. the very beginning of the pandemic, I had to get used to people walking around reassuring one another that they would be okay because it's only people like me who were going to die. Don't worry. It's just going to be like a cold for most of us. Most of us will be fine. It's just elderly and like immunocompromised people who are going to die from this. And I had to get used to the fact that people were using my potential death to make themselves feel better. Mm. Um, and that that goes into what Mike was saying earlier. It, it is very fed into by the belief that disabled people are either like these symbols of hope in overcoming adversity and, oh, you poor thing. Like when people think that our lives have less value, they start to think that our lives also have less worth. And that comes into play with things like COVID. It comes into play in other areas of legislation with triaging, uh, when people are deciding who gets a ventilator and there's someone else uh, who maybe doesn't have multiple sclerosis and multiple sclerosis doesn't affect the length of my life. It just is degenerative and affects uh, arguably some of the quality of my life. Um, but would I get a ventilator with the same? Uh, would my life be valued the same as someone else's? So yeah, it's been difficult. And as things have gotten quote unquote back to normal for some people, it's been really difficult for me to once again come to terms with the amount of people who just don't seem to value my life or the lives of other people like me uh, enough to wear a four by four inch piece of cloth on their face. Um, I want to go to Walmart with no mask. So you do you and it's not my problem is kind of the attitude now. And it's really heartbreaking and it's scary because I love my life. I'm disabled, but my life is actually pretty good and I would like to continue it. Um, and people being like, oh, you know, it's just those sick people. It's really been weird. It's been such a trip to realize on a mass scale globally how many people don't seem to care about immunocompromised people. Mm -hmm. And Mike, Lorley gets at something, um, you know, it, it, you, it, it, I'm sorry, I'm full of thoughts right now. But you, when you say like people are using your potential death as a way to bolster themselves up. That's ableism. Although we don't typically think of that as ableism. That's like, we're looking on the bright side, we're finding the silver lining. So Mike, for people like me who are fairly mobile with the exception of maybe, you know, the wear and tear on the knees of, of someone in their mid forties, but you know, for us who are able-bodied and do not have a disability, I mean, what is our, I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell us what to do, but I mean, just from your point of view, how can people like me make life better and make you and uh, people like you and Lorley feel more welcomed uh, aside from, you know, some of the stuff we've discussed, which is, you know, kind of governmental things and policy things. Right. Well, first of all, Adam, you're wearing glasses, right? Sure. Yes. I am your side. Yes, so you okay. technically have a disability. Okay. One of the most common disabilities, a yes. lot of people have it. A lot of yeah. people need the assistive device called glasses. Yeah. Very, very true, very true. So that's kind of the normalization of people with disabilities in, in common discord. And I think it, it we're still not there yet um, outside of other marginalized communities who, who are gaining more acceptance and more um, integration into kind of the social fabrics and the social norms. 
And there's always this one story that I, that I always remember. It still, still hits with me. So I watched an episode when Will and Grace came back and um, the, the, the one, the one character, Will's friend, I can't remember his name right off the bat. Um, he was talking to, you know, um, you know, a group of, group of people in, in, in his stage play. I'm talking about who's the most uh, marginalized group. He says, well, the LGBTQ is. And then someone else put their hand up and said, no, it's the African-Americans. We're the most marginalized. And then the senior got up and said, no, it's the seniors. And then everyone got up. It was the Latinos. There was still no representation for people with disabilities. Right. And that's a show, a very progressive show mm-hmm. that's highlighting struggles, highlighting, you know, awareness of the LGBTQ2 plus community. And still, there is no representation of people with disabilities. So we haven't even got to that part where it's in that kind of uh, conversation aspect, representation in media, representation on council or other type of leadership perspectives is still not there yet. But we're starting to see a little bit of a change right now. And it's the on the EDI perspective, because they're starting to see, well, we don't really have uh, accessibility to people with disabilities as part of that narrative yet. And they're they're really understanding a little bit more of how do we do that? How do we we bring them in? So it is kind of normalization, and I think that's another aspect of things is when we talk about you know we're not code code reliant uh, on the foundation and the stuff that we do around moving barriers. We're talking about meaningful access. We always bring a story. We understand when they understand the user and the different types of users that are going to utilize that space. It helps bring it into a normal person um it really makes it a lot easier for them to think okay i see why i'm doing these barriers i'm Mm. why they're there and let's remove remove them so we've got to bring that normal discord in there and we've got to get rid of the um paralympian perspective or the things on on news media when uh you know high school senior who down syndrome scores a touchdown right Mm. that story is not for celebrating that that person that's to make you feel good Mm-hmm. right it's like congratulations i made you feel good we're not talking about okay well, he's graduated what's his life gonna be like for the next 40 years right we don't want to hear that right. so that's the thing we have to have those those sometimes uncomfortable conversations to really normalize it and bring it into the discord and somebody with down syndrome usually makes it into uh you know in, in terms of a job prospects you know they do a lot of you know kind of basic work you know like kind of unskilled labor um which doesn't typically pay well uh you certainly can't get a make a living wage doing a lot of these unskilled service industry jobs and and that is where a lot of um people with um with that kind of disability ends up because you're able to do repetitive tasks and 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 things like that and uh we pat we pat as you're saying businesses pat themselves on the back look at our we're hiring people this person with down syndrome but we're we're not paying them (laughs) or we're not paying them well um you know so it's it it's interesting looking at it from that perspective what makes ourselves feel good um i had a thought about this maybe as sort of like one of the last questions i'll ask and maybe I'll, i'll throw it to lorelei first um would it help if the symbol for accessibility wasn't a stick figure in a wheelchair i mean is there like a way that there could be like a more inclusive symbol of what accessibility means <laughs> you know i've been asked that before um in in my work 
I've been asked if we were going to make a logo or a symbol and a wheelchair isn't inclusive enough, what would it be? And it would just be a person. So Mm. (laughs) (laughs) we're more than a logo, you know, disabled people aren't a monolith. We're all individual. We're all completely different. Two people with the same disability don't even have the same needs or the same barriers or the same physical capabilities. Even talking about people with um, Down syndrome, like, yeah, there are people with Down syndrome who end up in a you know, very menial jobs. There are also models and actors and philosophers. And, you know, there are people with full degrees and who do computer engineering, software engineering who have Down syndrome. So like, there's just so many different, um, there are so many different things that we almost can't even fit everything into a symbol. And the wheelchair figure is a, uh, a widely recognized symbol for specifically mobility accessibility. But when it comes to other things, just being clear about what options are available at different places, what accommodations, maybe not even calling them accessibility features. Mm. Like I, I work in the video game development industry and there's been a big shift away from having an accessibility features menu into just having a game settings option menu. Because realistically, these are just things that people use to experience life like these are just things that people might need they don't just help people with disabilities it's it's more about barrier removal than making things accessible to specific disabilities so i kind of went all over the place with that answer but it's it's almost (sighs) impossible to create one specific symbol because there's no one way to make things accessible. I've been asked to consult on the accessibility of spaces or programs or software. And it's almost like people expect me to be able to say, do these three things and then we can check a box saying this is accessible. But it's, it's more about having as many options for experiencing life as possible for people so that people can avoid any barriers that come up for them. Mm-hmm. And also um, making something accessible for someone with a disability is not necessarily precluded being a better choice or design or feature for someone who does not have that disability. Yeah, exactly. It's great in video game development, specifically when we can have like toggleable options that someone can say, do I want subtitles or do they make it too busy of a screen and too difficult for me. I'll just turn them off if I don't want them kind of thing. Um, But at the end of the day, there are video games that will implement subtitles and then hear from tons of people who do not have hearing related disabilities who are just like, man, I'm so glad you put subtitles in this game because now I can play with the volume off after my parents go to sleep. And like everyone can use these features um, in games and in life. Uh, There are a lot of different people who would benefit from there being more seating around to be able to take a seat when you need it. Things like that. Right. I like I like subtitles, too. I'm not a gamer, but I am a movie guy. And and so I Uh I do like it when there are sometimes subtitles with um, with uh, some movies that uh, the dialogue is a little (laughs) is more quiet. than the Yeah. 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 (laughs) Mike, to wrap up. um, A lot of issues around accessibility are kind of from upper levels of government. So I'm thinking about things like the ODSP raids, uh, building code, which we talked about, the straws issue. We, 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 we had this massive debate at city council about including plastic straws or excluding them in terms of the single-use plastic. We create our own local policy. Whammo, the federal government comes out with their own and you know uh, s- sets all that work down the river and ever to be 
brought to fruition. Um, how much of this is controllable on our local level if we just sort of make our local leaders aware? And how much of this is sort of like a trilateral mission where we kind of need all levels of government to work together to uh, make sure everybody everywhere is on the same playing field? Yeah, I, the, the, the political the political uh, discord and yeah. different types of political views always makes this challenging, and even more so today. Um, the for municipalities, I think you need kind of the the buy in from the, the 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 three main pillars in a community: the municipal, the private sector, and education. They have to all work together. And once they all kind of figure out, you know, what they want to do with the city, the the shape, feel, the the, the direction of the city, it can really help, you know, spur uh, innovation, spur um, uh, removing of barriers in a, in a really meaningful way. Because we can have great municipal buildings that are fully accessible, but if you can't get to it, right, or if you're in a house that you, you can't visit someone or a place of business you want to work at is inaccessible to you. Well, then that city's not accessible. So they need to all be in in in, in lockstep with each other to really fundamentally understand the direction the, the community wants to go. So that's a big one. But you still need the multiple levels because the way the structure is kind of laid out right now from the building code perspective. I talked to council many times about the housing. Well, it's not us. It's someone else. Right. right. It's always someone else. And and each level of government has their own agendas and their own um their own I'm just trying to think of it that the, the best thing to kind of say is in 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 a perfect world, if the disabled community, which is 15% of the world, right, mm -hmm. got together and had the same lobbying power as any of these corporations, we would get pretty much what we what we want and what we need. I think that fundamentally where I'm trying to go is if we can all work together as a communal voice and then that will enact change because the political leaders on every level will then listen to us and mm -hmm. i think that they know um that there is huge economic drivers that are sitting on the sidelines and ready to be used so it can benefit those ones at the lower end of the social economic scale and the ones on the higher end as well like i'm at the higher end and and it's a scenario that people just are gobsmacked when they say, oh, you're married, you own a house and you own a job and you're in a wheelchair, what? And it's like, yes, I'm just like everyone else. I just do things a little bit differently. And I think that's when you normalize it and they go, oh, okay. So there is economic power behind it. It's just, it's frustrating when you just see a lot of old way thinking that still continues to, to take the policy in one direction. And the community itself really has to say, you know, we want to be leaders in this area and run with it because we can't, continue to wait and do the same things over and over and over again. We're going to get nowhere. Just add more barriers. Mm -hmm. I don't want to jinx it, but I think we might have solved ableism with this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I also I'm, like, I, sure. I feel like, sorry, just really quickly on your last question, Adam, I've noticed at council often the answer is let's wait and see what the province does. Let's wait and see what the federal government does. So there is value in, you know, different people being in charge of different parts of government. For sure. I understand that sometimes council's hand is hands are tied, but municipal government has the ability to move so much faster than provincial and provincial moves faster than federal. That's so right. if we're going to wait for 
the federal government to make a change and then Guelph will mirror it. Let's look at other municipalities instead. Let's look at the over 100 municipalities that have accessible voting options and follow them. Let's look at, you know, there are so many municipalities in Ontario that we could learn from, or let's not be afraid to be the first to try something out and not have to wait for other levels of government. I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there because it's one of my pet peeves. No, no, I think that as a as a last word, that works uh, wonderfully. So uh, Lorelai Root and Mike Greer, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, sharing your experiences and expertise. Uh, I, joking aside, I, I, I think that uh, these conversations are kind of valuable to make us realize that... Um, you know, the barriers aren't as great as we want them to be. And that um, having a more inclusive society isn't is, is only as hard as we make it. So I, I, I thank you guys for that today. Thank, you, thank you so much, Adam. And once again, that was Lorelai Root and Mike Greer. You can follow both of them on Twitter where they tweet often. You can find Root at squarest under dash root. And then you can find Greer at all ol under dash mike one three and that's obviously both on twitter.com and you can learn more about the accessibility advisory committee at the city's website under the boards and commissions tab in the city government section and as a reminder to everyone since we're talking about election stuff early voting starts this weekend and you can find all that information on how and when to vote at vote.guelph.ca and that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone, if uh, you are celebrating. Uh, the music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And you can find out more about CFRU at CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to send me an email send it to adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, see you next time.